Welcome to the RootDown.us Community Podcast. I'm Dr. Brady Chen, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Greg Sperber, licensed acupuncturist and director of clinical services at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, and he's also the author of Integrated Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Chinese Medicine, published by Blue Poppy Press. Thank you for joining us today, Greg. Hello. Thank you very much. The pleasure is ours entirely. Uh, I, I want to lead with uh, a little bit about your book, Integrated Pharmacology. That's the hot word for Chinese medicine these days, integrative medicine. Um, and pharmacology has not gotten as much attention as acupuncture, it seems. Um, and there's a lot of concerns also regarding pharmacology and herb-drug interaction. Uh, what spurred you on to writing this book? And what, uh, why is it important that we have this information right now? Well, I, you know, what, what started me on the book was actually sort of a random meeting between myself and Bob Flaws and Honora Lee Wolf over at Blue Poppy. And... Uh, they asked if there was any projects I was interested in doing, and I sent them over about a 30 projects that were kind of on the back of my mind. And this was actually one of my top choices, and it became their top choice. So we went we went down that road. I, I thought it was a, a perfect combination of my medical degree and my, my Chinese medical degree. So I thought it would be a really interesting uh, topic to get into. And the one piece that I was hesitant personally about was um, that I thought was always a key component of the book was how do pharmaceuticals affect people according to Chinese medicine. And I just didn't think I had the um, background with either the pharmaceuticals or the Chinese medicine to be able to make determinations along those lines. And that's where Bob Flaws kind of stepped in. And originally we were supposed to be co-authors, and then um, I did such a volume of work that he, he just contributed. He became a, a very uh, significant contributor, but not necessarily a co-author on the book. And um, so uh, that's one of the things that I think is really neat about the book is that it does take, and we call it provisional uh, Chinese medical uh, descriptions of the drugs. So you can actually look at the drugs and see what they kind of do, possibly, according to Chinese medicine. And I, I got to tell you, just reading that chapter that Bob Flaws wrote, uh, my Chinese medicine got better. Just reading that chapter, it was a really great chapter. But I think the heart of the book, the, the piece of the book that I think is is um, just really important right now, is this idea of drug-herb interactions. The book takes uh, the, the perspective of looking up the drugs and seeing what herbs uh, might affect those drugs. And, and we step you through how to do that theoretically as well as practically uh, showing the research that's out there. And I think what I did differently than I, anybody else that I've seen is I've added evidence-based medical levels for each of those drug-herb interactions. So you can actually decide if this is a significant interaction or an insignificant interaction. You can, you can do that at a glance, which I think is really important. And the, and the thing that is so important about the whole concept is when a patient comes into us as a practitioner, um, there's, a, there's a statistic out there that 70% uh, of the people who are on um, supplements, herbs uh, or, or vitamins and minerals, do not tell their medical doctors that they're on those, those supplements. 70%. It's actually taking like 72%, but around 70%. Um, do not tell us what they're on. And that means that doctors don't know the herbs, the supplements um, that, they're that the patient is taking along with the doctor's drugs. We as acupuncturists are the only ones who have that full picture. We're the ones who know what herbs and supplements they're on and which drugs. And so I really think the burden of drug-herb inter interaction is on our shoulders, not the medical doctor's shoulders. 
And that is really where that integrative piece comes into play, that we need to know enough about the drugs, and uh, we certainly, hopefully, know plenty about the supplements and herbs as practitioners. And so we're, we're able to, to kind of see some of the danger points. I should emphasize, I don't think there's a lot of danger points. I, I think overall, combining herbs and drugs means that the drugs can be more effective at lower doses with, with fewer side effects. That was my next question is, is, are you actually encouraging the use of, of herbs in conjunction with uh, pharmaceuticals? Absolutely. The research coming out of China is that drugs are safer when combined with herbs. Uh, it's not just that there's a drug-herb interaction that is dangerous. There's a drug-herb interaction that's positive with the combination. So it's not negative. And I think one of the, the things that, that's happening right now in, in the, the U.S., is we're looking, and, and I understand, because what doctors are seeing is they're, they're thumbing through their JAMA, you know, their uh, Journal of the American Medical Association every, every week or two, and they're thumbing through it, and they're seeing these headlines, because they don't have the time to read the article. They're saying, this drug and this herb caused this interaction. Well, when you read those studies, and I've read, you know, hundreds of them at this point, um, it's one person in the middle of nowhere, and they were given the herbs at a dose that was at least 10 to 100 times higher, at least, than we would ever consider giving that herb to an individual on. And yet the doctor's just reading the, the headline saying, dangerous. So they go and repeat that to the patient says you should not combine drugs and herbs. The reality is the people who are really doing the com combinations of the drugs and herbs is, is China. And the research coming out of China is it's better to combine drugs and herbs, not worse. And so we have to be confident in our, in our skills to be able to actually safely and effectively combine drugs and herbs. I think it's a huge benefit to be able to do those sort of things. Though there are some dangers, and that's where the book kind of comes in, is to explain those dangers, how to assess them, um, which ones are real, which ones aren't. That's where the evidence-based medicine comes into play in that regard. Now, now given, given our, our profession's limited ability to alter that public mindset, what can we do as, as providers to, to start to open this conversation, this dialogue more, so that we can start to use uh, herbs alongside uh, pharmaceuticals? Well, you know, I, 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 that's a great question. And it's definitely one that I address a lot um, when, I, when I speak uh, around this, uh, on this topic around the, around the country. What I suggest is what I do when I speak is I talk about the ADME scheme. Um, the ADME scheme is sort of a basic pharmacology, pharmacokinetics way of viewing drugs. And if you understand ADME, ADME stands for ad, uh, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. If you can, if you understand those concepts, and they're not hard concepts, and you understand how drugs and herbs affect the ADME and the therapeutic index, and believe me, this is all in the book. Um, it's in a couple chapters in the book. Then I, I highly, highly encourage and recommend as practitioners that we actually call up doctors and talk to them in the terms of ADME and therapeutic index and say, listen, I've looked at this drug, I've looked at the ADME and the therapeutic index of this drug, I don't see any issues with combining this with herbs, you know, I've looked at absorption, you use this terminology, doctors all know this terminology, they may not remember it all word for word because it was done 20 years ago when they were in medical school, but they, they will at least recognize and will respect you as having gone through the process to assess the drug-herb interaction as an, as an individual drug-herb interaction. And I really think 
for the most part, with a few exceptions, most doctors are going to be open to a practitioner who can who can address these issues um, from both a biomedical and uh, I'm going to use the word alternative, though the, the better word is integrative these days, an integrative point of view. And I and this buzzword of integrative medicine is becoming very strong even within biomedicine at this point. And so there's there's cracks, and I think so long as we approach it as colleagues and using um, appropriate backgrounds, I think we can do this, and it's not hard for us to be able to do. Well, this kind of leads into the next area. What's, there's a lot of changes going on as far as herbal preparations these days. Um, herbal medicine is going through this process of generating its own policies and practices. The CGMP, Current Good Manufacturing pra Practices, is probably the biggest uh, step forward for herbal medicine. How do you see that? Uh, affecting our ability to work with drugs, and how does it affect? How do you think it will affect our use of herbs? You know, this is a, that's a it's a great question, and I wish I could tell you exactly how it's going to turn out because I don't know. You know, the the FDA has said um, in the rulings in the GMP rules. Um, they have said that they would use enforcement, this is a, a, an almost quote, um, they will use enforcement discretion to not prosecute individual practitioners giving herbs and supplements to individual patients or the schools that, that, that train them. What this says is that the surface sounds pretty good. Oh, good. We're, we've got a free pass. No, what it actually says is, nope, these laws, these rules are yours. They, they, are, they certainly do apply to you but we're just not going to enforce them against you. And I have a real fear of that because I, I really think the next time there's a big media stink, and I think that will happen eventually. I, I don't know if that's going to happen next year or 20 years from now or whatever because the media is always looking for a good scandal to, to put on the, on the pages. The FDA is going to be forced to abandon that policy, um, and not to mention that who knows when the next administration comes in that they'll just – you know, say, well, yeah, that was nice. The last administration gave you that pass. We're not going to. And so I, I, I'm just, I'm not very confident that the FDA will, will maintain that quote-unquote enforcement discretion. So I think this has a lot of ramifications for how we practice our herbal medicine. And, and at one level I go, wow, there's a lot here for us to deal with. At another level I go, you know what, it can take our individual practitioners' private herbal practices to another level. And I don't think that's ever a bad thing, to improve our quality, to improve our ability to give the highest level of service and quality to our, to our patients. And I, I don't think that's bad, but it is onerous. There's a lot to it, um, mostly in the realm of, of uh, paperwork. There's, a, there's definitely some procedures that need to happen, but most of the GMPs are regarding record keeping. And so um, it, once we learn that and create systems, hopefully it's not that onerous. It's the learning of it that can be a bit onerous. And I do think, and the, yeah. No, I was just saying that there seems there's not a real clear path on this either. It's just, I've talked to a couple of different people, and the, they seem to have different perspectives, slightly different perspectives. And so, like you were saying, the onerous aspect of it, we still have to figure it out. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we're due to have something in place by June or July of 2010 for the individual uh, providers. Small yes, practice. what it what it is is it's all about numbers. So if you have, I think if it's over 20 employees or 20 and over employees, it had to have been done this last July. Mm -hmm. And if you are less than that, it has to be this coming July in 2010. Right. And so um, it's it it is. And and I think as an individual practitioner, as an individual practitioner looking at what these GMPs are, I have several questions. Number one, um, when I talk when I teach practice management, when I talk about um, 
risk management, which I think is a, is a topic that's really important for all practitioners to, to think about. And we all do risk management. That's why we have malpractice. Malpractice insurance is a risk management tool. Basically what risk, risk management is, is there's a risk here. How are we going to deal with that risk? And I think we can take that same approach to GMPs. There's a risk here. Um, if we don't follow them, there's risk. Um, if we do follow them, there's an expense. Um, of both time, energy, and money, or all um, time, energy, and money. So the question is, there needs to be a risk-benefit analysis. And I, and, I, and I say this in all business. You're opening a business, you're opening a practice, there's a risk involved with that. There's just no way to avoid that. The question is, how do you mitigate, how do you minimize the catastrophic risks to your practice? And GMP could be a catastrophic risk. I think the minimum fine for a violation is somewhere in the neighborhood of $10,000 per incident. And so this is, you know, this would, you know, wipe out most private practices if there were any number of, of, of incidences. So I think individual practitioners need to look at this as a risk management um, point of view. And so there are several ways you do that. The first question is how likely are you to get caught? If you are caught, what are the consequences? Are you willing to absorb those possibilities and those consequences? And at what level do you think needs to be some intervention? And that's how insurance works. Insurance says, you know, malpractice insurance says, it's very rare that I'm going to be sued for malpractice. But if it does happen, I could be out of a career. So that's a high enough risk that I want to pay a little bit of money along the way in order to prevent that risk, that catastrophic risk from happening. Same sort of thing with disability insurance. You know, you breaking your hand means you can't do an acupuncture treatment. So what's the chances of you breaking a finger or a hand? How much would it be? How much money would you lose? Is it worth spending 25 or, you know, $100 a month to mitigate those that, that risk, whatever the, the price of that risk is? And so I think just I, 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 I'm not ever comfortable telling a practitioner how what they should do or not do, but I do think it's really important for at least to consider the consequences of, of GMP because it is it does affect us. There's no if, ends, or buts about it. The rules are about us. The other problem we have with these rules, an individual practitioner cannot comply with them because you need at least two people. You need an enforcement officer as well as someone who's actually doing the implementation. And so you need at least two people to, to be GMP compliant. So the most we can do is be mostly compliant. And so at some level, another decision that has to be made is how compliant an individual practitioner. And, and that's, that's a tough decision. Well, I, I don't think that we as a profession, certainly the association that we're both both affiliated with, the California State Oriental Medical Association, of which you were the past president and I'm the current president, we, have, we haven't really been offered much opportunity to, to give feedback on this process. It's kind of like it was handed to us. Uh, we're just trying to you know, find our way through it at this point. Any ideas on that? Well, you know, I, I, I have to respectfully disagree with you. I mean, this has been in the, in the making for about 10 years. And they've asked for comment from the public at every stage of it. And I've been kind of keeping an eye on it for a few years. And at one point, we were, individual practitioners were, were explicitly not part of the GMPs. That they would not apply to us. At a certain point, it did start to apply to us. And I think what happened was um, we dropped the ball as a profession. And while California, California State Oriental Medical Association tries to catch these balls as much as possible, this is really a federal issue. And it was not really on the, on the radar of our profession, unfortunately, even with these, long, these strong consequences of, 
of, uh, of of this possibility. And even when it looked like it was going to happen, there was still a lot of talk of, oh, it won't apply to us, it won't apply to us, even though they had already taken out that provision of the individual practitioner. So, you know, there's a lot of these down the pike. And, and, um, I, and, and believe me, I'm not, I'm not blaming any association. I think the issue we have with the associations at this point, and I think this is one of the major reasons why um, we have some consequences in our profession, it's only about 5 to 10% of our, of our profession actually belongs to an association. And so they don't have the resources to keep track of all these different things that are happening all the time. Uh, just to give you some, some idea, I mean, if you go to, I think it's um, – Doctors are somewhere around 70 to 80% members of their organization. 70 to 80% belong to one of their national organizations. Chiropractors are about 60%. I think dentists are like 90% of them belong to their, to their uh, professional association. And we're at between 5 and 10%. It's getting better. It was 5% a couple of years ago, and I think it's up to 10% now. But that's abysmal. And we, unfortunately, in our, we're already a small profession and have that level of, of, um, of, uh, participation just makes it almost impossible for us to keep track of all these different things and, and, and adequately reply to them. So um, it's unfortunate that it's happened, but I, I can understand why, and I, and I, but I wish it hadn't. I wish we could all kind of um, be together for these sort of situations. Uh, one of the things, since you, you also teach a, 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 a professional man, uh, practice management course, um, and having a strong practice is the foundation of having a strong profession. Um, I want to move over to, to some ideas you might have for someone who's uh, starting out, or perhaps even someone who's been in practice for a few years. Um, would you have a, maybe two or three tips, bits of, bits of advice for them? Sure. Um, well, there's a couple I would do. I, and, and some of this, I, the first one I'm going to give is geography. Uh, it's actually geographically, uh, it may not be geographically relevant to everybody. If you're in the state of California and some other states, especially like uh, Washington, um, where it's mandated that uh, all insurance has to pay for acupuncture, um, I, I think it's very important to accept insurance. We are in a more competitive place, especially in California, and accepting insurance puts, you, puts a lot of marketing out there. I, I, I get this all the time from my students. It's like everyone tells me not to, to accept insurance. It's too much of a hassle. It's too much of a pain. Don't do it. And and these are people. There's their teachers, their faculty, their their people out there that have been out there for 20 years, and they're absolutely correct. In 20 years of having a practice, you'll do just fine without insurance. But when you're starting off, you need a boost to get people in the door. And I, as I always like to say, I'd much rather have $40 from somebody for like uh, that has insurance than zero from them. So, um, yeah, it might be extra work. It might be extra, um, slightly extra paperwork, but I think it's really important to accept insurance in general. And I don't think it's correct anymore, especially in California, that you can actually open a practice and be successful without accepting insurance. And I, and I think um, we have a lot of old timers, um, and I have a hell of a lot of respect for them, um, but they didn't do insurance, and they don't think anybody else should be doing insurance. And I just don't think that is a is a winning strategy in this day and age for most places. Again, everyone has to make their individual decisions. So I think insurance is is an important important thing to consider. And that is sort of my other 
approach to this is whether or not insurance – I'm a big proponent of diversity, um, especially now as we're, we're still working in this recession. I think it's very important to have lots of opportunities. And what does that mean? When you talk about Western practice management, you talk about what's known as the patient mix. You talk about you have, you know, um, 60% are uh, insurance-based, and you can break that down into PPO versus HMO and all different types of insurance. Um, you know, 20% is workers' comp, uh, 10% is pro bono, and 10% uh, is cash basis, whatever it is from a, a biomedical practice point of view. But the idea is that you have a mix of patients. And so if anything happens within that mix, you are protected. So an example of this is, you know, several years ago in, in California when, when Schwarzenegger became our governor, basically overnight uh, acupuncture was, was tossed out of workers' comp. And I know practitioners who are making well over a half a million dollars a year doing workers' comp go into bankruptcy after, at that point because they were not diverse at all. They had put all their eggs in one basket. And so I'm a big proponent of having a little bit everywhere so that if any one thing goes south, you're good. So um, the reason that, you know, everyone wants to be cash basis, during a recession, cash basis gets hit the hardest. Insurance is the one that is consistent during a recession. During an economic expansion, cash basis is where you're probably going to get most of your money. So in other words, there are ups and downs in the economy. There should be, you should, as a practitioner, should have a diversity of, of revenue streams coming in. And that, of course, includes your supplements and your, and your herbs and all that as well. And also, this diversity extends out into all sorts of other things along the lines of um, have diversity, um, diverse ways that your patients can pay for you. You know, I, some people don't want to take credit cards because they take a couple percentage points. Well, I, my philosophy is if someone wants to give me money, I'm going to make it as easy as possible for them to do it. And so diversity falls into that sort of category as well. So I think diversity is an important thing. Bottom line is it just takes time and effort and, uh, and uh, a lot of hard work to make a, a practice viable, but I see it again and again and again happening. And if I was to say one thing for an existing business or an existing practice or a new practice, the one thing I'd recommend above everything else is do a good business plan because you'll work through all the issues of running a practice through um, creating a good business plan. And, and I, I say that time and time again, and the numbers are staggering that only about 5% of the people who open a practice actually will do a business plan. And, uh, but the, really, the, the, the research is very solid on this. There is no better assurance of, of being successful than having a, a good business plan. And I don't think it's the business plan. I think it's the process of going through and having to write everything down that is the benefit. I think that is the benefit of the business plan, not actually having a finished product, which I think is very beneficial, but it's having to answer the questions, how are you going to market? How are you going to set up the operations? Um, what about the accounting? What numbers do you expect? All those sort of things. And it's that process that I think is super important. Well, one of our, our colleagues, Jim Bloomfield, has uh, emphasizes this when he teaches uh, practice management uh, portion of my class over at uh, Yosan. So he says the same thing, too. Have a plan. Make sure you have all the finances in order. Um, and even if you don't actually do everything, at least you'll have thought about it at one point. So. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, exactly. What's next on the horizon for you, Dr. Sperber? 
Well, I have a new book coming out, and uh, thank you because this allows me to disclose some of my, what I just said about insurance mm-hmm. because my new book is on insurance billing. I'm, I'm co-writing. My, I have a co-author, Tiffany Anderson, um, and it's going to be called uh, Playing the Game, uh, How to Approach Accepting How to Accept Acupuncture, excuse me, How to Accept Insurance as an Acupuncturist. And that should be going to the publisher within a few weeks here. And so I would imagine that will be out and published about six to nine months down the road. Um, so sometime at the end of 2010 would be my guess as to when that will be will be out. And it's uh, basically step by step. You know, how do you do insurance? And so I think that's important. And I and I and I'm I'm glad you asked that question because I, I would like to disclose why I said, you know, always like to disclose what's going on with the insurance thing because I do think it's so important. I actually wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I'm doing lots of speaking around and uh, teaching uh, sort of things. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other major projects that are, are going down. I have uh, uh, another book I have I think I'll probably start uh, writing soon. Uh, do you have a website? Uh, I do have a website, and I'm horrible at keeping it up. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the website for the book is called Integrated Integrate Kid Farms. So the book is integrative pharmacology, integrative pharmacology, excuse me. The book is integrated pharmacology. The website is integrative, T-I-V-E, farm, P-H-A-R-M, dot com. Um, the original title of the book was integrative pharmacology. And um, so uh, that's where that came out. So integrative, uh, dot com. And I don't think I've updated it since January of this year. So, um, but I have lots of things that I'm, I'm planning. Another big project that I, I'm working on is putting that information, the drug interaction stuff, on the iPhone mm. uh, and having it as an iPhone app. So uh, any news along those lines would certainly be at the Integrative Farm. And, and, and of course, once it's kind of on the iPhone, I can do something on the web as well. So there's definitely some of those projects. I've been talking about that for a long time, so I'm not promising any dates anymore. Um, but I, I uh, would certainly like to get this information out to more people uh, so that we can we can all work towards safety and the integration uh, together. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Greg Sperber. We look forward to seeing your new works come out this year. Great. Well, thank you very much, Brady. appreciate your time. Well, it's a pleasure to mind. Um, join us next time on RootDown.us's community podcast. This is Brady Chin signing off. Have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye.